Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. I have a returning guest on my podcast. Blair Osler was on episode 24 and was the very first person that talked about being bisexual. And when I stepped in this space, um, Blair was one of, not just because we have the same last name, we're probably distantly related, but we're not like first or second cousins that we know of. Blair was somebody I met. I remember meeting her in affirmation events, and I remember reading her blog, her Facebook posts. And as I was trying to just get reprogrammed to see LGBTQ people as our Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother see them, I felt impressed Blair would help me. She's helped me a lot. And um, she's helped so many other people like me that are trying to better understand LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And I think our listeners know that the best way to do that is to listen to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Allies' role is really to amplify their voices. And so Blair was on episode 24, somewhere in early of 2018. And now um, she's back on this episode recorded in October. Blair is um, lives in Utah, but we're doing this via Zoom. We can see each other. This is an audio-only podcast, but it's like Blair and I are in the same room, so I'm grateful for technology that allows us to do that. Um, Blair's going to just update our listeners. So, Blair, you are somebody I deeply admire, you and your husband, Drew, and your family, and um, thank you for being on the podcast again. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And uh, will you just give us a brief intro, intro where you are, where you're from, what you do, and what you like to study? Absolutely. Um, so I am originally from Washington State, um, but I live now in Provo, Utah, here with my little family. Uh, I'm married. I have a husband and three awesome children. Uh, I have a background in philosophy. That's my degree. And um, I also have an emphasis in queer studies. And um, philosophy and queer studies is actually my second degree. My first degree was in fine arts. So I like to paint in my spare time too. Um, but uh, so if at any point during the podcast, I start talking about all these vocabulary words that your listeners won't be familiar with, please feel free to interrupt me and stop me and say, whoa, whoa, whoa not everyone, you know, has a degree in queer theory. So <laughs> I'll, I'll take it slow. I love that you um, have expertise in that area. And I love the way you pursue a continued education. Um, that's great. I may have mentioned, but um, I've shared with our listeners the book I wrote, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And Blair, we quoted you quite a bit. Um, I made a private Facebook group and would just ask questions to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And Blair has about six, sec six quotes that are part of the book. So um, I'm just glad her voice is being heard in so many quarters because um, Blair's voice has certainly been helpful for me, especially when I think about bisexual. I was aware of people that were bisexual before I stepped into space, but this is really a podcast for to help others. I minimized that whole experience, Blair. I just thought, what's the big deal if you're bisexual? I know that's triggering for you because you've heard that your whole life. Um, and I think as I listened to Blair's first podcast and as I followed her, and as I think we'll hear in this podcast, um, we need to hear stories from bisexual Latter-day Saints because minimizing anybody's experience just adds to their burden and invalidates them. And so I'm so grateful for Blair being on this podcast. Next question is, why are there so many labels for bisexuality 
and why does it matter? Yeah, this is this is a question that comes up a lot in the work I do. I get parents usually asking me, my daughter came out as pansexual. How is that different than bisexual? And um, in the whole repertoire of labels for the bisexual experience, we have bisexuality, pansexuality, uh, multisexual, omnisexual, polysexual, and I think there's a couple more. Oh, and also queer. So there's all these different labels to kind of describe this experience of not having one set gender whom you're attracted to. And there is a lot of debate within the BIPAN queer community about um, the purpose of these labels and why we have them and things like that. But uh, for the most part, it's because bisexuals have this way of really trying to be inclusive with our labels. Bisexuals uh, more recently in queer theory have often um, been asked like, oh, well, if you're attracted to only two people, you're perpetuating the gender binary, right? Like the idea that there is only men and women with ignoring the gradient of genders that exist between the binaries of women and or men and women. And so uh, part of the idea of coming up with these new labels is to be more gender inclusive. Uh, for the most part, though, a lot of people, bisexual is the one that most people know, the most people are comfortable with and familiar with, um, then followed by pansexual. And then um, the other ones might follow like multisexual, omnisexual, polysexual, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of different words for what uh, we're experiencing, but um, it, there is kind of a general reoccurring theme that person's sexual orientation isn't limited to just one gender. Uh, that's really helpful. And uh, some of our listeners may be hearing new vocabulary for the first time. And I've learned to just, when I hear something new, not and it makes me a little unsettled because I'm hearing pansexual or omnisexual, I think you said. And the second one is I know less about. I just encourage our listeners to sit with that uncomfortableness. So that's just, to me, part of education and part of labels, and that's just part of improving our understanding in this space, even if it causes us to kind of be uncomfortable as we're recognizing we're learning things that perhaps we didn't even realize for the first time. Um, and that's just part of to my feeling is just maturing as a society and understanding each other better. Why do you call yourself queer? Oh, well, this is, yeah, <laughs> this is a great question. I love the word queer so much. This word was once used as a derogatory way to make people feel shame about who they are, whether it's their gender presentation or their sexual orientation. This word is used to try and make someone feel bad and shameful. Um, I don't feel bad and shameful about those parts of myself. And so for someone like me, queer is this reclaiming of what was something bad that people tried to make or something that people thought that I needed to feel bad about and say, no, I don't feel bad about that. You can call me queer. It kind of takes away some of the power of the word from trying to say, we're going to make you feel shame about this and we're going to put you in a closet. And so I use the word queer a lot as a reclamation of something that I think is actually quite beautiful. Um, another reason I use the word queer because um, for me, it encompasses both my sexual orientation and my gender. Um, so there are lots of different words for, um, different gender experiences too. So there's trans, which most people are probably familiar with, then there's cisgender, but there's a whole lot of variations in between there. You have non-binary, genderqueer, um, 
gender expansive, gender variant, and then you have intersex folks. And so you have this big range of gender experiences happening. So for me, queer encompasses both my sexual orientation, being bi, and both my gender experience, um, being a non-binary person myself. So um, it really kind of encompasses everything for me, whilst at the same time, um, it affords a little bit of privacy. And I think that's sometimes something that people take for granted is the idea of privacy, because, um, you know... in in the process of legitimizing um, queer orientations or queer uh, gendered experiences, people have a tendency to ask really inappropriate questions that they would never ask a straight person or a cisgender person. But for some reason, for a queer person, everything's open on the table, ready to be dissected and questioned and diagnosed, and they want all the juicy goods of it. So um, when I use the word queer, I'm just letting you know, hey, I'm a part of the LGBTQ community, and I don't necessarily need to share with you all of the things that that entails because I'm going to give myself a little bit of privacy at the same time. So it's this balance between disclosure and legitimacy and on the other side, privacy and maintaining the fact that, okay, I, I do deserve some privacy as an LGBTQ person, you know? That's really helpful. Talk about, um, not, just in case anybody doesn't understand non-binary, to explain that to us. Oh, so non-binary is also a term used for uh, people in the LGBTQ community who don't identify exclusively as male or exclusively as female. So non-binary is um, a compilation of both male and female attributes, usually in presentation. With intersex folks, it's actual biology. There's both uh, masculine and feminine parts at work in some point. And that's where I reside. That not my all, all my non-binariness is not always uh, a presentation. It's internal, right? It's parts of my body that are actually different than most cisgender women. Um, so non-binary just means somewhere between the binaries, really. But um, it's usually inclusive of both. Thanks for answering that. And thanks for being, I admire your vulnerability just to be personal about that. Um, yeah. And well, and it's tricky too, because sometimes um, like I've experienced more shame about my gender experience than I have my sexual orientation. Why? And so I am still, why? Yeah. Um, uh, because I think people are coming around more on ideas of someone being gay or someone being bisexual that this um, uh, taboo against, uh, you know, relationship norms is something that's being overcome a little bit faster than gender norms. Because uh, let's say you have a gay man, he's not really uh, challenging a lot of the, well, okay, I'm trying to word it carefully because without getting too philosophical. (laughs) So if you have a gay man, he is challenging cis-heteropatriarchy. So this idea that there is a right order of things, and when you challenge the order of authority, there's going to be problems. A gay man kind of challenges that order of authority, but not a lot, right? A trans person completely subverts that type of authority. It says, oh, well, if I can move from this category, man, 
to this category of female, then the powers and authorities and things at B, and this is way bigger than the church or anything. This is just basic societal structures. Um, that can feel very threatening to people because they would go, I don't know how to talk to you anymore. I don't know how to treat you anymore because how we talk and treat each other is so coded in a gendered way that when we try to talk to someone, if we can't tell what their gender is right away, it's almost like, I don't know how to talk to you. And so the intersex community definitely gets a lot of the brunt of this because um, for some intersex people who have um, non-binary genitalia, and who are uh, intersex that way. Well, the practice has been to actually cut them to make them fit a gender binary. For me, my intersex condition isn't on uh, anything physical on the outside. Mine's internal in my reproductive anatomy and my hormones and things like that. And I didn't find out about those things until I went to reproduce like a lot of intersex people do. Um, So for someone who's intersex or someone who's trans, it's challenging people's way of thinking about how we interact with each other and what we're supposed to do and how we speak to one another and everything to the point where intersex people have literally been cut to fit this idea of this gender binary to whereas a homosexual person or a bisexual person it's not to the same degree there is some gender subversive behaviors happening but it's not the same as um this body is actually non-binary. What do we do with this in a binary system? Oh, we're going to cut it, you know? So I've definitely experienced more shame in that category because women are supposed to be women and men are supposed to be men. And if your body didn't fit in one of those two categories, um, you did it wrong. You're God's mistake, right? Um, You're this thing that needs to be eliminated from the equation or either fixed and rehabilitated, rehabilitated to fit the equation. So just for me and my personal experience, it's definitely been a matter of um, you were born kind of a woman, but you weren't born the right kind of woman. And that's a scarier thought than me growing up being like, oh, I'm attracted to women. That's great explanation. I just, you have a remarkable life story because your firsthand experience um, in both communities, um, which doesn't happen very often in this podcast. and then. Um, not being cisgender and not being straight. Um, so you're part of a couple worlds there, and you can speak authentically because you understand both of these roads in a really unique, wonderful way that's helping people better understand. There's so much education that's needed um, that you're helping us understand, and even the use of the word queer and why that works for you. People, I'm 60. I'm old enough to be your dad, I think, Blair, but... Um, I just, you're right, people of my generation hear that word and it's completely changed. And it's probably a good lead into the next question. Why do labels matter? Yeah, so this is a big one too. So why all these labels? Why why are we constantly trying to label all these experiences and things like that? And um, the most common uh, pushback I get is why aren't we all just human? Why can't we all just focus on that? And that's a good idea because we do want to focus on our commonalities that allow us to um, reach common ground with each other to be able to build uh, relationships with one another. But the problem with erasing all the labels and just saying, why can't we all be human is we're erasing actual experiences. We have the label to identify the experience. So for the average Latter-day Saint, we have labels all the time. They say, can't we all just identify as a child of God? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. But 
different children of God experience the world a little bit differently. So whilst we are all children of God, well, some of them are women, some of them are men, and we have these labels to identify and experience. So another label I wear, I wear lots of labels. Queer is just one of the labels I wear. I wear the label mother and my children call me mother. So let's pretend for a second, we took away the label mother and it's just, oh, I'm just a child of God. How would that affect my experience and how I engage with my children? If there wasn't a word for the word mother, what does that mean? And so for me, the word mother, it's to set me apart and say, I am this specific thing in your life. I am the thing here to take care of you and love you and nurture you and all these wonderful things. And what if I didn't have that word? It would be a lot harder to communicate that in society, to my children, to myself about what it means to be a mother. And so there's lots of labels we wear and I'm not about to erase my labels. I love my labels. They help me identify these very important experiences. And again, for Latter-day Saints, we do this all the time, right? That um, we give, we give our children baby blessings. We set them apart. What? With a name, with a label. We set this child apart and say, this one's special. I'm going to give this one a name. And I'm going to make sure this one knows that this name means something and that you are cared for. It, to give something a name or a label is to set it apart and say, I love you. It's to identify, right? And think about in the temple, we get a new name. How exciting is that? So we wear all sorts of labels. And so if we want to um, erase all our labels, think of what kind of world that would be where we don't lessons set apart our children. There's no word for mother. There's no word for all these wonderful experiences. So for me, queer or bisexual, that's just one of those many labels that help me identify and share with the world. Oh, this is who I am. This is what I'm experiencing. Um, so for me, labels aren't, labels aren't the bad guy here. It, even if we get rid of all the labels, that's still not going to get rid of the problem. So to say, um, oh, why does there always have to be a label on it? Well, because I'm trying to share something with you and it's really hard to do that without a label. So yes, we are all human. Yes, we're all children of God. Wonderful. But look at all these subset of things we can talk about too. And it also reminds me of the scriptures. And when uh, Paul wrote about it in Corinthians, he wrote about the body of Christ. And what did he say about the body of Christ? He said, neither the hand is the foot, nor the foot is the eye. We have all these different body parts in the body of Christ. And it's such a beautiful analogy because it's about finding unity within our diversity. The scriptures didn't say the body of Christ is the body of Christ because all parts are a foot. Imagine if we were all feet. No, 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 no. It doesn't function that way. It functions because of our diversity and because of our differences. And so um, if we're getting rid of labels to say, oh, look, we're all children of God as a way of loving each other through common ground, that's great. But you know what's even better, good, better, best is to say, oh, you're different from me and I still love you. I'm going to love you even though we're different. We don't have to have that thing in common to love each other. That's what it is in the body of Christ. There's diversity in the body of Christ. We were not meant to all be the same. We were not meant to have the same political positions or political affiliations. We were not meant to have the same genders. We were not meant to have the same orientations. We all have a different skill set, a different grouping of talents, and we share those things accordingly. And when we really want to love each other as members of the body of Christ, we can say, I don't love you because you're the same as me. I love you because you're different than me. And that's powerful.
It's a great segment. It's the best segment we've ever done on that. I love oh. your, I love um, how you bring us to mother and how important that label is and how you transitioned all these labels that are helpful. And I recognize that if I say, don't label yourself, I'm just creating shame around who you are and the way God's created you. And that is just the worst thing I could do because it just makes well, you, it just, I don't think, I think Satan resides in our shame. And then he says, well, we're really not we're a mistake and God doesn't love us either because people aren't even letting me take on a label to define this part of me in a positive way. So it, it just and, takes us all down all these negative roads. Well, and this is particularly pertinent to the bisexual community too, because so often is the case. I've been asked this many times and it's, well, if you're bi and married to a man, why do you have to come out? Why do you, why do you have to share this thing about yourself? And part of that is because uh, why do we share anything about ourselves? Why do we share anything about our likes and dislikes or anything? And so part of that bi erasure, um, this idea of like trying to make bi people invisible, um, that label is an important part of it. It's like, oh, I'm just wearing this label, but, but, but to say, don't label it anymore. That's, that's the erasure part. We don't want to know this about you. We don't want you to exist in that capacity. We want you to get married to someone and we want to assume things about you without actually having to deal with the fact the person in the pew next to you is a bisexual woman. <laughs> I love that. And um, I'm thinking of Elder Quentin Cook's comment from October conference. You'll have to tell me if this so sits well with you. Um, uni unity and diversity are not opposites. We can achieve greater unity as we foster an atmosphere of inclusion and respect for diversity. How do you, is, yes. that, is that okay? That quote's okay if it's consistent with what you're teaching. Yes, it's definitely consistent and pertinent. And I'm so glad it came from uh, uh, Elder Cook, too, because Elder Cook specifically has a tender place in my heart, even though we don't agree on all things. But he has a very, very tender place in my heart because when the Mormon and Gays website came out and he did the intro for it, he said, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender saints. And that was the first time I had ever heard a general authority call me by name and said, bisexuals, we welcome you. He said the word. And so some people want to, uh, I, I know that that may not seem like a big deal to some people, but the fact that like so much of my life experience has been erased by saying, don't give me that label, don't come out, don't X, Y, Z. But then to have Elder Cook come out and say, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Latter-day Saints, we love you. We welcome you. Like I broke down in full-on tears when I heard that on the Mormon and gays website. It, it was a very beautiful moment. But yes, the, the, quote you're, the quote you shared too, that, that's definitely beautiful. That's what we should be striving towards. And I'll be the first to admit, I don't get there perfectly. Nobody gets there perfectly, but um, that's definitely a worthwhile goal to strive for. Isn't I'm just reflecting, listeners, about how much that meant to Blair that a leader of our church used the label that is who she is and how helpful that was for her. Um, I, I wish you could all see the emotion. Blair talks about this subject a lot. She's a pretty seasoned. She's got, but there's a tenderness about what Elder Cook did that I can just tell as I'm looking at her face in the Zoom means, meant so much to her. And Elder Cook didn't 
he didn't give up anything to do that. It's not like he crossed a line he shouldn't have crossed or he taught something inconsistent with what Christ taught. To me, he just taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way he taught it in that introduction was so helpful to a bisexual member of our church. And it just, to me, role models what we all need to learn to do and how important this podcast is in Blair's Life Ministry to help us better understand and bravely talking about um, her gender orientation and her sexual orientation. Gender identity, I think, is a better phrase than gender orientation. Identity um, and orientation, it's a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brian Spittler, Spittler was on our podcast, episode 30. Uh, I don't know what episode it is. I just tried to Google it. Um, he's age 34, but he's one of the other bisexual Latter-day Saints we had on the podcast. And he married to a woman, but he, like Blair, felt, you know, that needed, wanted to talk about this. Let's talk about, um, you kind of touched on this, but I want to make sure we talk about it. What is bi-invisibility, bi-phobia, monosexism, and or bi-erasure? Okay. Yeah. So these, these are some big terms that get thrown around a lot, and I think they're often misunderstood. And um, let, let's just go from one by one. So bi-invisibility is basically the, 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 um, the invisibility of bisexuals. So for example, we're kind of like chameleons. When you see us married to a person of the same sex or the perceived same sex, people just call us gay or lesbian. But then when you see us married to a person of the opposite sex, you'll just think we're straight. And so bi-invisibility is the idea that you can't really see us because you just assumed our orientation based upon the gender of our partner. So um, you never really see bisexuals because from your perception, oh, that person's just gay. Well, no, they're actually bisexual. They're just married to a person of the same gender. Oh, that person's straight. Well, no, they're actually bisexual. They're just married to a person of the opposite gender. So bi-invisibility is the idea that you just don't really see bisexuals because we're versatile. We're versatile. We can be used in a lot of different ways. And we are often just taken for granted that way. Um, so biphobia is another word that gets thrown around a lot. It's the idea, the actual fear of bisexual people and what this means. Um, it's actually not my preferred term because anytime you kind of pathologize something, it kind of displaces responsibility of the person who, um, is, uh, perpetrating something biphobic. So for example, if I say something, I'll make it really simple and overt. And I say, I hate bisexual people. People say, hey, don't say that. It's biphobic. But I don't prefer that because it's um, privileging the person who's perpetrating uh, the wrongful uh, ideology as opposed to privileging the feelings of the person who experiences it. So it's saying, oh, that person's biphobic. Well, no, I'm not worried about whether or not that person's biphobic. How is the bisexual person receiving it? And that's where monosexism comes in. This word means just um, any kind of sexist attitudes or um, prejudices towards a bisexual population. Or when I say bisexual, I'm also talking about pansexual, multisexual, polysexual, omnisexual, the whole gamut. Um, so monosexism is, is this idea that um, being either gay or straight is the correct way to do things. And anybody who is outside that binary of either being gay or straight, um, uh, perpetrates um, acts uh, or words of monosexism. Um, and then what was the last one? Um, by race. 
oh, and by erasure. So this happens all the time in, unfortunately, both straight spaces and both in LGBTQ spaces. And this is something that can be really hard for bi people and contribute to this idea of, well, we don't belong anywhere because we're constantly being erased wherever we go. So for example, um, this happens in academia all the time. People will talk about um, LGBTQ rights, but then they only talk about gays and lesbians, but actually not recognizing, oh, bisexual people were there too. Um, we were a part of uh, certain uh, activities or activism or marches or parades too, but yet it's always about gays and lesbians. Um, uh, one of the things about bi erasure that really bothers me usually comes into account of conversations of conversion therapy. And so if people who aren't familiar with conversion therapy, conversion therapy is the to put bluntly, the pseudoscientific practice of trying to change someone's sexual orientation. And it has been debunked across the board by every medical establishment possible. I mean, they're, they're united on this front. It, it, it was a bad idea and it should not be happening. But what happens is in history books or um, uh, queer textbooks or things like that, or conversations of um, conversion therapy, they'll say, um, this actually happened. So this actually is an example. Uh, bisexual people were also put through conversion therapy. And then when their attention was redirected to members of the opposite sex instead of the same sex, they were used as citations for how conversion therapy worked. Wow. And I'm using air quotes. So bisexual people were basically weaponized to show how conversion therapy works wow. to be used against our gay and lesbian peers or uh, siblings. And so we were in the same breath weaponized to hurt gay and lesbians, but then erased from the literature. And we were used as an example of how conversion therapy works. So we were both a weapon and then we were both erased at the same time. And it's so damaging because the conversations still keep happening about conversion therapy and the effects of it, but people don't talk about how bisexual people played a pivotal role in that as victims, not as weapons, but as victims. We experienced these things too. We experienced the shame and all sorts of things too. And then we were put as a footnote as to why it worked. It's tragic. And so that's by erasure. They erase bisexuals from the equation, but at the same time weaponizing us to hurt other people. And that needs to stop. It needs to stop. That's new content for me as I continue to get my hard drive reprogrammed. And I've been in the space for four years-ish, but you just taught me something I've never understood before that's very helpful for me. And I didn't even know how to pronounce this term. I've actually mispronounced it in this podcast. It's by erasure, not by erase. Um, right, it's by erasure. It. Yeah, and so um, listeners, you know, I'm just like you sometimes picking up things for the first time. And that's the reason a lot of you are listening. So, you know, even, so if you're just brand new to this space, this is the kind of podcast you might listen to again, just to pick up all the things Blair is sharing, because there's a lot of really good, perhaps new content for all of us. And that's why this podcast platform works and we're grateful for the brave people like Blair that come on. Um, that was a great segment. Um, my heart, it's just, that was fascinating to me to see the role, the weaponized role of, of bisexual people in the conversion therapy world. 
Um, maybe you've answered this. Can bi erasure and monosexism happen at the same time? Yeah. So uh, with a lot of these things, these can happen overlapping at the same time, which are people like, how can, how can you be erased, but also be a weapon? Well, this is how, um, another, uh, one that struck me is, um, unfortunately it was a Latter-day Saint who was definitely struggling with understanding LGBTQ experiences made the comment oh, I'm okay with gay people as long as they don't try to get in bed with me and my husband. And so I had to think about that for a second because if you're okay with gay people, they're, they're just one, it kind of talks about us like we're predators constantly trying to uh, find our way into unsusuming heterosexual relationships, which we're not. Um, and also if you're gay, you're not looking to get into bed with someone's husband and wife. Um, that is actually a bi-trope. And so what that does is show um, monosexism. So this idea that bi people are predators trying to get into bed with unassuming heterosexual couples, but at the same time referring to us as gay people. So it's, it's, in, that, in that case, it was a biphobic comment and by erasure at the exact same time. And this is what we're constantly dealing with, people being afraid of who we are, what we are, being pre sexual predators, but then we don't even get the courtesy of you calling us bisexual. You just blamed it on the gays. So again, it, it, it like doesn't even make sense to a certain point. And so as a bi person, you like constantly feel like you're on guard no matter where you are constantly clarifying false things people are assuming about you and it happens it happens in it happens in both communities it happens in lgbtq communities and it happens in straight communities and so this is where like this sense of like not belonging comes from because at any given point you're constantly having to clarify who you are um when there's all these horrible stereotypes about bi people the idea that you know, bi people are greedy, the bi people are selfish, and we're constantly looking for, you know, <laughs> heterosexual couples to get with and that we're sexual predators or pedophiles. And it's, it's, it's frustrating to constantly have to uh, clarify, hi, I'm not a predator. Hi, uh, no, I'm not a rapist. No, being bi isn't the sin and next to murder. Um, it's just, be, it just becomes utterly exhausting to a certain point where it's like easier just to not be around people at all because you don't know where the next assault is coming from, you know? And, um, so back to the original question, can it happen at the same time? Yeah. Bi erasure and bi invisibility and monosexism, biphobia, it can all happen at the exact same time. And one of the things I've noticed is, especially in talking with uh, bisexual youth, is the youth sometimes haven't developed the vocabulary to identify all these things that are going on. They don't like they they haven't studied it for years on end like I have, right? To me to be able to sit and identify, oh, this is monosexism, this is bi erasure, this is bi invisibility, um, with all the citations and footnotes. And so I do notice and see it though that. Um, bisexual youth or pansexual youth are experiencing these things, but also don't have the vocabulary to identify exactly what's happening to them. So what happens, and this is what I'm seeing more often than enough, anxiety, anxiety and depression. 
without like this clear explanation as to what's going on, but something is going on and their body is keeping score. Their body knows something is going on. I don't feel safe or whatever, but I know it's happening. I just don't have the words to describe it. Again, the importance of labels, to describe the experience, to find out what's happening, to be able to identify those things so the healing can start, right? And that's actually uh, one thing I get the most phone calls about, usually about bisexual youth who are struggling and trying to find their space. Um, And that is one of the things I find the most just um, haven't fully developed the whole vocabulary of how to identify these things. And it's really important to be able to have the vocabulary to identify these things. Otherwise, how are we going to get the behavior to change other than, you know, please stop calling us pedophiles. That's a good segment. I um, uh, I really like the idea that labels and understanding someone's sexual orientation or gender ide- identity is key to helping them move forward in a positive way, not through conversion therapy also, or not obviously, but I just think when someone understands where they are in the queer spectrum or the LGBTQ spectrum, then better decisions can be made and better community can be built around them not to change it, not to fix it, but to help them just move forward in a thoughtful way, understanding who they are, and I believe how God's created them. So I think that's really helpful. And I I once heard someone, I mean, some of the stereotypes I've heard are like, well, bisexual people just want to be sexually active with men and women. I don't know if that's under the umbrella of biphobia or just insensitive comments and just minimizing who you are. Um, I think that's a really inaccurate comment. Well, and with that, it's also about reducing someone's, it's, it's very strange to say this, but a person's sexual orientation isn't exclusively about sex. I mean, I know it's a sexual orientation, but it's not just about sex. So for example, I would never reduce your relationship to your wife to you just wanted to have sex. No, your relationship is so much more than that. Yet for some reason with bisexual people, it's just all about the sex. And it's like, no, I develop relationships with people and can develop romantic feelings for people and connect on levels of intimacy with just different types of genders. And so your gender just isn't a marker for me on whether or not I can fall in love with you. And so much of that doesn't have to do with sex at all. But yet we keep reducing sexual orientation down to sex. I wish it were a love orientation, you know? I love, you have no shame when you talk like that. You've, you know, for a lot of bisexual people, you just help them de-shamed. And I would think, and maybe you, you'll have to tell me if you feel this way, are glad they're wired this way because it allows them to have wonderful um, connections in a positive, healthy way with lots of people. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, and that has definitely been key into untangling the shame because I didn't always feel that way. I actually, um, one of the worst feelings you can have in the world is wishing you were not you anymore. And I actually know what that feels like. And I know what it feels like to pray and be like, I don't want to be queer anymore. I don't want to be this thing anymore. I don't want to be me anymore. And, um, that's actually one of the reasons, um, I don't know your listeners, how they'll feel about this. Um, I actually stopped attending church. And um, it wasn't something I wanted to do at all. I actually kept going when maybe I shouldn't have uh, gone. And for me, um, I, I was so anxious and so depressed and so sad about who I was in the pews 
I could no longer feel the spirit. I couldn't feel my heavenly parents' love. I couldn't, I was, I was numb and I was blocking it all out because I didn't know how to deal with the onslaught of commentary that was happening about who I was. And it got to the point where I didn't want to be me anymore. And um, I had panic attacks. I would leave the pews, go out to my car and privately have a panic attack to the point where I could hardly breathe. And I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. I I was not planning on talking about this. Um, I would have a panic attack in the car. And um, I remember after one specific panic attack in the car, I said to my heavenly parents, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to go back in those doors. And my heavenly parents said, Blair, you are that you might have joy. We want you to be safe, happy, and healthy. And if it's not in those church pews, you need to go somewhere else. Because if you're not safe, you can't do all the things we have planned for you. You have a big, beautiful future ahead of you. And you can't do that if you're not safe, healthy, and happy. And um, it was after that experience, oddly, having a panic attack in my car (laughs) in a church parking lot that I was like, okay, um, the church isn't in inside the church walls is not the only place I can feel the spirit. It's not the only place where I can still um, find some sort of spiritual fulfillment. And for me and uh, our family, it wasn't about, yeah, I don't even want to be here anymore. I kept going. I wanted to make it work so badly, but my body had a physical reaction when I went to church. It had a physical reaction that said, you're not safe here. You're not safe. And that's when the anxiety kicks in. And that's when I'd have to run out to the car. And so I think there is some negative stereotypes about LGBTQ people who don't go to church anymore. And I think there is some misunderstanding and misconceptions about why we don't come to church. And I'm not trying to pretend that like everybody's experience is my experience. I hope that all LGBTQ people aren't having panic attacks in their car. And so everybody has a different experience. But for me, it wasn't that I left the pews because I didn't want to be there. It's I needed to find God somewhere else. I needed to be spiritually fed on Sundays. And I couldn't do that in that church pew. It just didn't happen. I mean, my dream, my dream someday. Yeah. I'd love to come back to church. Are you kidding me? I have I have a 10-year-old son who didn't get baptized, and that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. I want him to be baptized, but I don't know how to make these pieces fit. I try so hard to make all the pieces fit, and I, I I just don't want to be treated like a weapon used to hurt gay people, and I don't want to be erased, and I just want a place where I can teach my kids all the wonderful things I learned in the gospel. And so right now I kind of feel like, at least in my spiritual journey, um, I'm homeschooling the kids, the church right now, because I don't know how else to do this, right? I teach them primary songs and we do it on our own and we pray before dinner and we do it the best we can. Um, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it's hard to do that without my community, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I have spiritual confirmation from my heavenly parents. We want you to be safe, happy, and healthy. 
and you, you can't be a mom if you, do, you aren't safe, happy, and healthy. You can't take care of those babies and you can't do all those other things. So for right now, I'm doing the best I can to be safe, happy, and healthy and raise these babies the way, in a way that would make my heavenly parents proud, you know? That's on behalf of all of us, Blair, thank you for opening your heart and sharing that experience with us. We're just, it's sacred space when someone does that. Um, and my love, respect, admiration for you only goes up when I hear you vulnerably talk like that. And I just, my instincts at this point in my life are just to sit with you in that pain, do everything I can to validate the pain that you feel and have felt. And even as a committed, deeply believing, whatever right verbs are to describe me as a Latter-day Saint, I can do that and sit with you. It's not a dichotomy that I have to sort of, and I don't, and I believe when I honor your pain and sit with your pain and validate that, that it's more likely you'll be able to heal than if I have to have you prove it or say, Blair, you're just being too sensitive or they didn't really mean that. Or, you, you know, Blair, I mean, you've heard all these things. I don't need to make them up and re-traumatize you. <laughs> but I just have learned to sit with you, Blair, and say, you know, we need to do better. And it's on us to help you feel like you belong where you're part of the needed body of Christ and that we need you as a queer Latter-day Saint. We don't need, we need that part of you in our pew, just like you, it teaches in 12th Corinthians that you talked about earlier, the body of Christ. And for listeners that are listening, I think I just invite you to act on the impressions you're feeling on what you can do in your circle of influence to help the people that may not be, have as much courage as Blair has to be open about their about being queer, but are closeted there, hearing all the things about people like them that are generally not very kind things. And we need to talk about LGBTQ Latter-day Saints as our own people sitting on their own pews as needed members. And so that's a pretty- Well, if I may add to that. Good. So one positive thing um, I find is keeping my heart open to change and keeping my heart open that some of the trauma I've had in the past doesn't have to be trauma as part of the future. Um, I recently got a phone call. It was really terrific from one of uh, the uh, high councilmen in our state. And he was looking for ways to be more LGBTQ inclusive. And one of the things he said to me, which was absolutely amazing, is he said, I can understand why the church pews aren't always safe for LGBTQ people. And to just be acknowledged, to just be understood that someone was able to see, oh, I can see how this isn't safe for you, that this isn't just, you know, uh, it's not like, you know, like a petulant toddler throwing a tantrum on the ground. It's there are real feelings and real reasons as to why some people don't feel safe there. And so just by acknowledging it, like, I talked to my husband about it afterwards. I was like, maybe, maybe we can go to church on Sunday. Wouldn't that be cool? You know, and just to be understood already lifted a weight to where I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I won't be misunderstood in my entire life. Maybe that trauma can be part of the past and maybe the future can be something different. And I see it happening all the time. Luckily for me and my work, I get to see the positive things happening all the time too. I get phone calls from parents. My daughter came and was by. My daughter came out as pan. Maybe you could help me understand that. Like when I was growing up, that was not 
that was not a thing. There was not this network. There was not um, this ability to be able to go connect with other people and get the help we needed. Actually, when I was growing up, the word bisexual, the label bisexual, it was not in my vocabulary. I didn't know what it was. I didn't even have a label for my experience. I just knew I was attracted to women and I was attracted to men. Or at that case, I was in puberty. I was, it was like middle school. So I was attracted to boys and girls. And um, I did not have the word bisexual in my vocabulary. So I didn't know what was happening to me. I mean, that's what I grew up in. But today, now I get parents saying my daughter came out as pansexual. And I'm like, congratulations. She has a word for her experience. That's amazing. And guess what? I have a parent calling me wanting information on how they can better parent their pansexual child. Like, oh my goodness, like this is like a dream come true in so many ways. And so I have to remember myself as an LGBTQ person, I don't want to pass my trauma on to queer youth. That trauma is my trauma and I'm not going to pass it on to them. And though I may understand some of their trauma, but the world is changing. It's getting better. People are wanting to understand and to educate more or be educated more. And with that brings so much hope for me, so much hope. I can only imagine how my bisexual elders feel about (laughs) how this is all changing so much in so many ways, just so much more love and compassion involved in the conversation. And I, the whole thing just brings me hope that I'm, I want to leave my trauma in the past, you know? And I want to move forward in a very hopeful direction. And I think we have the potential to do that. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you're already doing it. You're already doing it. You're taking the first step of actually hearing from actual LGBTQ people. I mean, that's, I, I, I know people like criticize giving out cookies for allies. I'm giving out all the cookies. Yes. Yes. Keep doing that. Thank you. Thank you for listening because there's so much more to being LGBTQ inclusive than just talking about the queer community. It's about listening to the actual voices within. You have to actually be queer inclusive. And that's what this is. And it it makes me so hopeful, so incredibly hopeful. Blair, your voice is really needed. I'm just feeling, I wish people could see Blair's face right now that I can see this is a face of a woman with a lot of hope, a lot of light. You can just feel her goodness. I admire somebody. She said some things. I don't want to pass my trauma on to other people. What a self-awareness that I think we all have trauma to some extent. We're all a little wounded, but I love that your intellectual understanding and your clinical skills. And I think your relationship with your heavenly parents has allowed you to be in a space where you have so much hope you feel healing, you realize the source of your trauma, and you're helping people in a positive way and even willing to... St- I hope everybody heard the emotion in Blair's voice where she said she'd love to baptize her 10-year-old child. Now, is that the statement of someone that doesn't believe in our church and doesn't actually want it to work? And as I've met with people that are no longer attending the church, the single binary narrative that they don't want the church, they don't want to be here, they don't believe in the church is not true. Because I hope you can feel how much Blair loves the church, believes in the church, is teaching it to her children at home, would love to baptize her 10-year-old son, 
or have your husband baptize him. <laughs> um, I, we, hey, we, I'd <laughs> love to do it too. I'm yeah. open to that someday. <laughs> so that's, yeah. And I didn't want to sort of pigeonhole you one way or another on that. So that's just fine. Um, but I just recognize that there's a lot of people that have felt pain from what I call the institutional side of our church, the human side of our church, the part that, in my opinion, doesn't match the gospel of Jesus Christ, doesn't match what Paul taught in Corinthians. And that's why we're both glad you're here in this podcast to be able to say, what can I do better in my circle? And and that starts with education. And there's a lot of needed education in its vocabulary and the things that Blair is teaching us. But there's some ministering principles here of by sitting with people in their pain and hearing their stories. And think of that high councilman, how that maybe took some courage to call Blair. And it would have taken courage for me, you know, before I stepped in this space and wondered if I put my foot in my mouth for something I'd say. But how you can just tell how much that meant to Blair that someone would ask, instead of asking an ally, it's always better to ask an LGBTQ person. That high counselor could have called me or an ally in the stake. But how much better is it that he called Blair? And how much it meant for Blair and how much better the education he got from listening to Blair and how safe Blair felt. I think if he were speaking in church, I think you'd feel pretty safe going to that talk um, because you just know you wouldn't hear anything that would be triggering and you might really enjoy that whole Sunday experience. I'm speaking for you right now, which maybe isn't the right thing to do, but. That's the dream, Richard. That's the dream (laughs) to go to church and to not feel trauma. Like that's the dream. Like that is what I want. I would love these things for my family. And I am hopeful that they might happen someday, but I'm also like not going to hold my breath either. I'm going to keep living my life. And one of the other beautiful things too, like for every time I get a phone call, I mean, I get phone calls from bishops. I get phone calls from state presidents just because they uh, read my work and things like that. And um, the thing that is always most helpful for me is just their willingness to listen without trying to fix, you know? just to understand and half the battle, like, honestly, especially for a bisexual person too, if you just understand me a little better, like we're already going to be able to move leaps and bounds together and do wonderful, beautiful things together. And so, um, it it just means the world to have someone who's there and willing to listen. And, um, even, even someone like me who no longer attends church, these people know, I don't attend church anymore. So why would they, why would they call me? I left, uh, you know, the pews. I, I, I did not leave the church, at least not in my heart, not on the records or in any other way. And though I'm not in the pews, like they still said, you know, I want to hear what she had to say, because maybe there was a reason, maybe there's something to be learned from this. And so for me, that's incredible. That is an incredible outreach to go outside your comfort zone to say, this person left the church, but I can, or left the pews, but I can learn from them anyway. And I can hear them and I can understand them. And if I do that, maybe we're going to end up healing together. And that to me is, again, that's the dream. That's where we want to be, to be able to heal in so many ways. And again, just like with passing on trauma too, that's how you heal the trauma. You know, you reach out and say, oh, I understand this part of you a little better now. Can I understand this a little more? 
And honestly, I'm not one who's big for apologies because I think actions speak louder than words. But when I do get an apology, it still feels really good (laughs) to someone who maybe said something really insensitive or didn't quite understand the by experience the way I had hoped they would in ways. But um, again, I just, I just see a lot of people in the church doing so much to try and understand. And granted, I don't want to make it sound like it's all sunshine and roses. There is still trauma happening, but I see a lot of good people doing a lot of good things, trying on, on both sides of the spectrum, you know? And that's how healing has to happen. It comes both ways. We got to work together to heal together. And that's what I want. And I, I want it. I want it for the LGBTQ youth too. Like, I don't want them to have those horrible experiences I had. I want them to be safe, happy, and healthy. And I just, and, and you know, actually uh, something very beautiful happened to me recently to give me that kind of hope. Um, I have a daughter and she's seven. And um, she talks about growing up and marrying a girl someday. And when she plays with her My Little Ponies, she'll marry the girl My Little Ponies together. And she talks about girls are so beautiful and they smell like coconuts. And we don't label her experience for her. We don't tell her she's queer or bi or lesbian or anything because it's not about that for her. Again, a sexual orientation is so much more than a sexual orientation. It's just in her imagination She's making plans for her future. And in her future, she's going to have a wife and babies. And as I was listening to my daughter play out these scenarios, and as I was listening to her, you know, marry her My Little Ponies, my heart exploded with love. I could not love this little child any more than I do right now. Not because, you know, I'm bi and I want my daughter to be bi. No, 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 no. It's because in her imagination, she has options and possibilities. And for her, it's a good thing. She has hope in a future. She has all these exciting plans to where like so much of LGBTQ trauma is, I have no future. I have no family. I have no plans. But here she is, this little girl making future plans with her My Little Ponies, how girls marry girls and have babies and families and all these wonderful things. And as I'm watching her and listening to her do this, my heart is just so full of love because she's hopeful about her future. She's hopeful. And, and as she was doing that, I go, oh my goodness, I could not love this little girl anymore. And the spirit spoke to me. And the spirit spoke to me and said, Blair, that's how much your heavenly parents love you. And I was not expecting that. I was not expecting that. In a lot of ways, I'm not always on speaking terms with my heavenly parents because I get really frustrated. And sometimes they speak to me in ways I am not expecting at all. And that was one of those very unexpected ways, me looking at my daughter and loving my daughter for her hope in the future. And my heavenly parents took the time and consideration to say, Blair, that's how much we love you. And for the first time in a long time, I felt my heavenly parents' love. And I thought, maybe they really could love me as much as they love 
their straight cisgender children. Maybe they love their queer children just as much. And I couldn't feel that for myself until I saw it in some little beautiful child I loved. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see my heavenly parents' love for me until I was able to open up that love for myself. And it was when I could love her. It was when I could love myself. And that this love is this exponential thing that we have to grow and share. That's how our heavenly parents speak to us. It's through love. It's through loving one another. If we're not loving one another, we're not opening ourselves up to all our heavenly parents have to offer. I mean, imagine all the things I'm blocking out right now because I'm not open to what my heavenly parents have to say to me. And so it's about keeping that open heart, that open mind, moving past my trauma, letting our children have better futures than what we had through reconciliation and through understanding, through bishops who call that person who stopped going to church. It's through all these things. This is how our heavenly parents are showing us our love for, for, for us. It's through each other. It's when we love each other. So, you know, Blair and I kind of put together some questions, and I love the way that Blair, we haven't, I love the way you're just following the Spirit and sharing wonderful personal stories. And when I think of, I think of hope, that is my favorite word in the gospel. And so much of that last segment was hope for you and the hope for your daughter to have hope for her future. Every parent would want to create scenarios that give hope to their children and their future. That to me is a gift that us parents should give to our children. And that's part of the gospel of Jesus Christ and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not feeling shame for how we're created. And I love where you say where you learned that heavenly parents love their queer children just as well as their cisgender um, straight children. I'm also thinking of the parable of the lost sheep, and I don't want to infer that you are the lost sheep because you're not in the pews. So that's one part of the parable I don't like. But I do look at um, the good shepherd, and and your high councilman's the good shepherd in this example, because he didn't ask the other sheep why you left. He decided he was he knew you well enough, or acted on impressions well enough to go. F- he, the good shepherd knew where the sheep is and why that sheep left, and he didn't just you know and. And he knew in the in the parable, he he knew where to find her or him. I don't know what gender the sheep was. And so to me, that's a key principle of ministering that takes a little courage. And the high counselor did it in your and you talked about that bishop. That instead of going to council meeting and having ward council with all the sheep saying, Why doesn't Blair go to isn't attending? It's to go talk to Blair and and have enough confidence in our restored church and in you and that we're the same human family, to just sit and listen to the stories of people that don't attend. And don't drop, it's easy to drop food off on their doorstep and leave, and it's easy to send them a nice text, and it's easy to kind of keep everything not addressing the elephant in the room, but the elephant in the room is Blair is not attending church, and people know that. So I think the best way to minister to Blair is to just ask her why she doesn't attend church and be willing just to listen to that because in my experience that's the very best thing we can do and don't and don't go visit Blair uh, there's a quote in my book that a person tweeted out we as Latter-day Saints need to love people because they deserve to be loved not because our love will bring them back to the church 
So I think we should just, I think that's what the Good Shepherd did, is it's this non-agenda love that Christ taught, is we should just sit with people where they are, not with an agenda to sort of bring them somewhere we think they need to be, but just trust them enough that our love will help them make better decisions about the right path for them and trust them as they're moving forward in their life. So that's just some ministering one-on-one stuff that going along with Blair. Are you okay with all that or anything you want to come back to and say it doesn't quite sit right no, with that, me? That was very beautiful. It was very helpful. No, I think it's terrific. I would also point out that nowhere in, um, in, in the productive conversations I've had with people reached out to me, they never say you need to come back to church or they'll never even say, um, they, 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 they don't try to pressure me to coming back. Instead, what I've noticed has been most helpful for me is just through the act of the conversation and understanding, I find myself wanting to connect with those people, connect with back with my Latter-day Saints, back in the pews, because I'm actually just feeling understood. So the invitation wasn't even necessarily that had to be like, hey, Blair, why don't you come back to church? It was through the act of listening and understanding I wanted, I wanted to, like, I wanted to continue to interact uh, because it's, it, it was a positive experience. So it wasn't like, oh, Blair, let's, let's get Blair to come back to church. It was, no, let's understand Blair. And maybe once we understand Blair, we can figure out ways how we can be better to other people that maybe in ways we weren't nice to Blair. That's great. Um, I, one more story, and then I want to send it back to you. And we've got maybe a few more questions here, but maybe you could just pick one or two on our list as we're coming to the end. But I, in the book, I talk about an elders corn president that visited somebody in his ward that hadn't attended for 25 years or so. And he just went out to lunch with them and said, tell me the story of why you don't come to church. And with tears in his eyes, that guy that had been, not been attending for 25 years, served a mission, was active for a lot of his life, just said, you know, no one's ever asked me that question. I've lived in this ward for 25 years, and I felt people interested in me, I, but no one's ever asked me that question. And how helpful it was for him that someone just was willing to hear their story. And um, I just think that's living a higher, holier way that our church leaders are inviting us. When we talk about ministering, it's a higher, holier way. It's not a checklist that we just once a month go visit, you know, have a checklist. It's really getting to know people's stories. Um, and that's where we connect with people. And then I love the way you're talking about, then you feel a feeling of belonging as someone hears your story and it makes you feel like you may want to be a part of that. So we've got a few more questions here, Blair. Um, do you want to take a few more of them? I'll just let you. Know you... I, I, you know, uh, or do you want to go a different direction in this podcast? No, we no, still no. Have it's all been so wonderful. I, I just it totally went a different direction than I was planning on, but that's totally okay. I, I think, um, if I'm being completely honest here, I think I miss having a safe space to share my testimony, to share my spiritual experiences, because when cool. you don't go to church all the time. Uh, church is your place to be like, I love fast and testimony meeting the weirder, the better. It is my favorite. I know some people have problems with it. I love it. It's my favorite Sunday uh, of the month, just because you get to hear people's raw experiences. And I feel like that's where a lot of the beauty is. Um, even if I don't always agree with everything that's being said, you get to hear the raw, beautiful things. But when you don't go to church anymore, 
you um, find yourself in this place where you don't always get to um, uh, share these special tender experiences because for a lot of, in a lot of spaces after um, you transition a little bit away from certain types of church activity and you transition into like post-Mormon and ex-Mormon spaces, and I don't want to generalize those spaces, but um, they're generally not safe spaces for bearing your testimony of your heavenly parents' love. Um, for the most part, you got to know your audience, right? And that, that, uh, that, that audience is not necessarily in a space where they're going to be receptive to me talking about how I had this experience with my heavenly parents. Um, likewise, not being at church, I don't have a place to share that either. So I think sometimes queer Mormons find themselves in this weird, awkward space of having these spiritual, wonderful experiences that we don't know who to share them with or who to talk to about because um, people in the church sometimes aren't comfortable hearing the queer testimony. And people who long since left the church and, you know, severed connections, you know, in ways that whatever works for them, they're not willing to hear, oh, I have this testimony of this thing that you gave up long time ago, right? And so when you're in this space of having this, I'll call it a queer testimony, um, you don't really have a place to share it. And I weirdly find myself, and I, again, was not expecting to do it on the podcast, but I weirdly find myself in this space where I'm like, oh, I get to share my queer testimony. I get to say what I'm thinking and feeling without having to like filter for the straight Latter-day Saint or filter for the post-Mormon who doesn't want to hear my testimony anymore. Um, and so this is a very beautiful space to be in. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. <laughs> well, you're very kind, Blair. And um, you're, you know, the world is, what, one of the goals, you know, the world is so divisive right now and there's so many differences. And we know that we're on the front end of election. You may be listening to this um, podcast after the election, but I just, you are one of my heroes for finding common ground principles that bring us together as the same human family. And you did that for me when I first connected this space. I, uh, I think I read everything I could get my hands on that you wrote, and you're a great writer. And I continue to try to do that. It's hard for me to keep up with everybody now. But I just love your understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your love of your heavenly parents, your committed role as a mother, as a disciple, as a Christ, as a wife, these wonderful children you have. Um, and how lucky they are to have you as their mother. And whether they're straight or queer, you are, gonna, you are the right mother for these kids, and you will continue to help them feel Heavenly Parents' love and the gospel of Jesus Christ and give them hope for their future, which is what I think our Heavenly Parents want us to do as parents for our own kids. And you've had to do a lot of work. I mean, I if you probably did another podcast of all the painful experiences we'd have, we'd probably go, oh my gosh, Blair. But it's it's remarkable where you are that you still, sometimes relationships get toxic and we just have to completely separate ourselves. And some people's relationship with the church has become toxic that they, and you're honest with how triggering it is for you and how from an emotional health standpoint, you recognize you couldn't do that. But I admire that you're willing to keep that door open You've kept it wide open and it's still intact with your heavenly parents, but even the institution of the church and one day attending, one day you'd like to. 
And that may not be everybody's path. That may not everybody's ability, but it's, 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 I admire you for willing to keep that door open. And I, if I were your local leader or your high counselor or your ministering brother, I'd probably just say, Blair, I trust you. And I would give you no prescription or no sort of conference talk. I mean, I don't want to rule out, com- I think conference talks can be great. We just quoted Elder Cook's talk. But I just say, I trust you. You have this wonderful relationship with your heavenly parents. You're getting great personal revelation. I just trust you. And I'd probably say, help us know how we can do better because we want to keep more people um, feeling safe in our church. Thank you. So give us just any final thoughts, Blair Osler. Yeah, um, just for anybody listening who is um, wondering how they can be more inclusive of bi people in the pews, um, just be willing to be open and listening and understanding. And when some bi person comes out, don't say, why did you have to come out? Just understand that maybe it's just a organic process of self-disclosure that they're just saying, this is just who I am. I just wanted you to know. And um, just, just essentially just being open to listen to experiences outside your, outside your comfort zone, which can be tricky, but that's where it all starts. Um, will you talk, just another question came in my mind. Will you talk to parents, LDS parents that have queer children and want to find a good therapist? You probably get a lot of questions for that. I get a lot of questions and I, I just know there's a need for really good you know, a lot of parents recognize their child needs a good therapist as it's really getting complicated. And they may even be worried their child's suicidal. Talk mm-hmm. to LDS parents that are trying to navigate the emotional health aspect of this. Absolutely. So if I were talking to a parent right now, I would definitely tell that parent that, um, again, the most important thing you can do is to listen to your child and help them feel a sense of belonging. You love them no matter what. And make sure that uh, that sense of belonging and that they are loved and cared for is still intact, even through the confusing parts or not misunderstand or misunderstanding one another, or even maybe your um, youth doesn't have the vocabulary yet to identify fully what these anxious triggers are. But like if your child does say to you, I don't feel good at church, but I don't know why. Well, there's probably good reasons for why they feel that way, even if they don't have the vocabulary to pinpoint and identify what's happening yet. With that, sometimes therapy is needed and necessary, which is great. I've been to multiple therapists myself. I've been, uh, I, I've, I've went through all sorts of processes to help overcome depression, anxiety, suicide ideation, all sorts of things. And um, for me, the most beneficial place I've been to is Flourish Counseling Services. And they are great with navigating where various people are with the church and your faith. There's not a lot of judgment, whether you consider yourself true blue all the way through believer, or you're somewhere in the middle, or you just feel like you're done with the church. There's no judgment on the church spectrum. Also, the counselors and therapists there are very educated in LGBTQ issues, which is so important. I think sometimes people don't understand how necessary it is to have a therapist who is specially specialized in LGBTQ issues. And it's very, very important because I've actually been to therapists that are not specialized 
And it was a very traumatizing experience because not all therapists know how to deal specifically with LGBTQ issues. And that's very, very, very important. So I highly recommend Flourish. And um, if you're someone with extra money on your hands, please go donate to them because they're literally helping queer people have the tools they need to I, 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 sometimes I want to say they save lives, but it's not that they save lives. They give us the tools to save ourselves and to help us learn better ways and better strategies of coping and navigating with a world that wasn't built for us in a lot of ways. Um, but Flourish Counseling Services, I can't say enough good things about it. Um, definitely make a donation, make an appointment and, um, and any parents PM me, message me on Facebook, Instagram, or you can find me on my website, blairosler.com. And if your youth is struggling, I can always help get you connected to, I've been in the community a very long time. I've been active in a lot of the different uh, LGBT Mormon communities. So if you need me to get you connected to a certain group or anything like that, I am happy to share my network and resources to get people connected with where they need to be because let the healing begin, people. Let, let's let the healing begin. Will you spell out your the name of your first, just let our listeners know how to spell your website. That's so they know your first name, the spelling of that, so they can find you. Sure. It's Blair Osler, B-L-A-I-R-E, Osler, O-S-T-L-E-R. And it's just BlairOsler.com. And you can find a bunch of stuff that I've written and lots of podcasts and links and things like that. Um, my book is coming out soon. Tell Hooray! our listeners about your book. Um, so it's queer Mormon theology. It's being published through by common consent press and, um, it's still in the final editing stages and we're really hoping to get that out soon, but I'm really excited about this book because this book, um, centers queerness and the queer experience and how, um, Mormonism and queer isms work wonderfully together and that we really have all sorts of potential opportunities to reconcile these seemingly oppositional differences, but really reconcile them and realize there's room for queer children in God's good gospel. I love that you're writing a book and I love, and thank you, our friends at By Common Consent Press. Is that right? Have I said that right? Yes. yes. For uh, publishing your needed book. And I encourage all of our listeners, please go to BlairOsler.com. Um, if you need to reach out to Blair, if you'd like to read her book, I'm sure there'll be a link there once it's available. Flourish therapy, I agree with um, Blair. Flourish therapy is just the word flourishtherapy.org in Provo. Um, great organization to help LGBTQ youth and adults, I assume. And Absolutely. I still go there. I still go. That's great. And it's been terrific. Even through quarantine, I Zoom therapy just to keep me safe, happy, and healthy like my heavenly parents want me to be. I think that's great. We need Jesus and we need therapists. So Blair Osler, I'm so glad we did this podcast. And we, if we do, we don't need to wait 300 episodes before our next podcast. I don't know if we'll do 300 more, but we need to hear your voice more frequently on this podcast and throughout the LDS community because um, you're just a voice that helps us better understand. So thank you and thank our listeners. This is Richard Osler signing off with Blair Osler from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>